0: Welcome to Beyond Blathers, the podcast where we dive deeper into the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing, New Horizons. I'm Sophia Osborne. And I'm Olivia DeBercier. And if you want to support the show, you can check out our merch store at etsy.com slash shop slash to see the sticker sheets, stickers, and postcards we have for sale.
1: You can also get free shipping if you spend $20 Canadian or more at our shop.
0: And as always, you can join our Patreon to receive a monthly sticker and print in the mail from Olivia. So this week we have a dinosaur!
1: Yay! They're always my favorite episodes to research and talk about, and we are talking about Parasaurolophus today. So you'll notice that I'm calling it Parasaurolophus and not Parasaurolophus. I've heard it said both ways. But I'm just going to go with Parasaurolophus because it kind of rolls off the tongue a little easier for me. But who knows? Maybe I'll switch between the two throughout the episode. Hopefully not. But I'm going to do it. Parasaurolophus. So this is a duckbill dinosaur. So think of like Ducky from Land Before Time. It's a pretty popular one. It's one you've probably seen before and they're really cool looking.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm I'm really excited for this episode. It feels like a long time since we've done a dinosaur. I'm a little bit scared to be pronouncing this name, but I will try my best.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a weird one. Like, it makes sense when you hear it and then you try and say it as well. And it's like, it's definitely not the easiest one to say. I, I distinctly remember one time, I think I was working at the nature center and like a small child said the word parasaurolophus to me perfectly. Like I had a parasaurolophus toy and the kid was like 5 or something and I was like see you can teach kids anything cuz if the kid can say parasaurolophus perfectly they're good like <laughs> you can oh, teach yeah. them more
0: complicated words Right and they're the ones with the sort of like crest mm-hmm. thing at the back of their heads right Yeah yeah they're those Okay yeah I know Yeah that's quite a that's quite a famous dinosaur for sure Yeah
1: It was definitely like my favorite as a kid probably because I'm before time And, you know, as an adult, very few people ask you what your favorite dinosaur is. So definitely my old favorite used to be Parasaurolophus, and my new favorite is Pachyrhinosaurus. So I just want to say that because I want people to know what my favorite dinosaurs are. How about you, Sophia? What's your favorite dinosaur?
0: I mean, I guess it's not technically a dinosaur, but I love any of the, like, marine reptiles that are extinct, like ichthyosaur or, um, like, mosasaur. Mm. I just love, I just wish I was in the ancient sea. That's very but, on brand. Yeah. But like in a <laughs> in a very sturdy submarine, but I want to, to be there. Yeah. <laughs> Please take us there. Well, I'm super excited to get into it. But first, let's see what Blathers has to say. So when you bring him a Parasaurolophus fossil, he'll say, Hootie Hoo, para- <laughs> what? <laughs> Blathers. <laughs> Hootie-hoo, Parasaurolophus. I like to think of it as the beast with the golden tones. You see the three-foot structure of hollow bone atop its head may have been an elaborate noisemaker. As a dyed-in-the-feathers optimist and music fan, I like to think it serenaded the late Cretaceous. This is a very colorful description. Yeah, and Blathers is a music fan?
1: <laughs> I didn't know that. Also- Sorry, but what does
0: dyed in the feathers optimist mean? Dyed in the wool. It's like. Kind oh, of
1: like, I've know. never heard this expression before.
0: Yeah. Un- unchanging in a particular belief or oh. opinion. The more yeah. you know. <laughs> There's a little owl. owl pun. An owl pun. But it went over my head. <laughs> went over my feathers. Died in the wool is one of those things that I've like always heard. And I'm like, yeah, what does that actually mean? Hmm. Wow. Well. We learned so much on this podcast.
1: But yeah, like I totally agree with this. Serenading the late Cretaceous, like can you imagine what that would have been like to just hear this amazing like calling through the woods? I very much imagine it would be like when you're walking through the Rockies and you hear like an elk bugle, which is kind of a scary sound and very haunting, but it can also be quite beautiful. I don't think I've actually ever
0: heard an elk bugle, but yeah, I imagine it is. We should
1: edit one in now because it's a crazy sound. It's like people should know what it is because I think they would get really scared if they heard it camping and didn't know what it was. <laughs> okay. It's, it's kind of like a, like a scream yell. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe, I don't know, other people, I guess it's not, I shouldn't call it beautiful. It's, it's mostly like crazy and terrible, but like you're in the mountains, so it feels aesthetic. Okay. well, anyway, uh, getting back to the Parasaurolophus, its name comes from the fact that it was initially thought that like when it was discovered that Parasaurolophus was closely related to another dinosaur called Saurolophus. So they just sort of like added para to the end, sort of like like Saurolophus. And Saurolophus makes sense as a potential relative, because if you saw an illustration of what one would have looked like in life, it superficially resembles Parasaurolophus, but with a shorter crest. Now we're realizing that Parasaurolophus is actually within the subfamily Lambiosaurinae. So Lambiosaurs are hadrosaurs. And so, sorry, I'm throwing a a lot of terms around here, but I'll explain them. So if we recall back to some earlier dinosaur episodes, we've talked about hadrosaurs before. They are these sort of large herbivore kind of cow-like dinosaurs, at least that's how I imagine them. They've got a very large body, very square, and they have that sort of beak-like bill. So think about that. But within the Lambiosaurs specifically, their heads have these very large, well, sometimes have large round ornaments that make them look pretty unique compared to some of the more plain Hadrosaurs like Edmontosaurus. So to summarize, Parasaurolophus is a hadrosaurid. Like other hadrosaurs, Parasaurolophus ate plants and had a delicate beak that helped them select their food quite carefully. So they seem to have eaten really any kind of plant. They had teeth batteries behind the beak. Those are really good for grinding down hard plant material, and they would be able to continually replace those teeth as they wore down, which is pretty common among herbivores that we've seen that are extinct and also some that exist today.
0: Wait, what are teeth batteries? <laughs> They're basically like big tooth chunks.
1: <laughs> Think of like really big molars. It's it's just like a term that sort of means how the teeth like the teeth are kind of all together is the best way I can describe it like it's just a chunk of tooth but they kind of look like a whole bunch of teeth
0: all together I was just like oh gotta recharge my teeth batteries that's
1: right (laughs) in order (laughs) to eat oh I forgot to recharge them yeah that's that's what that means and like the other thing that they have in similar with other hadrosaurs is they probably weren't super good at defending themselves other than, like, their size. Uh, so they were probably prey to a lot of carnivores. Big things like the theropods that looked a bit like T-Rex, like Gorgosaurus and Albertosaurus. But also small Parasaurolophus would have been preyed upon by smaller theropods as well, like Deinonychus and those sort of Velociraptor style, you know, if we're thinking like Jurassic Park Velociraptors, those sorts of carnivores.
0: Yeah, you mentioned their size. How big were they? They were
1: pretty big. The sort of smaller end, we're seeing around 31 feet or nine and a half meters. And at the large end, they could be 39 feet or 12 meters. So we're talking about a very large animal that could weigh from half a ton. And in pounds, that would be about 5,500 to 6,600 pounds. So this is really like small elephant sized, huge creature. And despite their size, it seems like Parasaurolophus was actually capable of running on two legs, which is really cool because if you imagine like the dinosaur posture that you saw as a kid, maybe with these outdated books and stuff, they were often very upright. And even though they didn't look quite as upright as like a toy Parasaurolophus might, they still had that capability to sort of just be on two hind legs walking around. Overall, the posture of this dinosaur was the stout body. It had a long straight tail sticking out sort of to balance it out. And its legs were relatively thin, especially the front legs with feet that had these elephant-like big pads under their feet to support their weight. So imagine kind of like a dinosaur kangaroo where you know they're foraging on four legs kind of looking for food but as soon as it sits up and starts walking around it's pretty much just moving around on the two back legs. The other handy thing about being able to walk around on two back legs is that hadrosaurs were capable of accessing a food source that other herbivores like ceratopsians or ankylosaurs weren't, which is food that was higher up, leaves on higher parts of the trees because they could rear up and nibble on higher parts of the tree. And because of where they lived, which was primarily this sort of interior seaway area, there weren't a lot of sauropods with long necks around there. So they weren't competing with sauropods for those higher elevated food sources.
0: It seems like, yeah, a good adaptation. Yeah. And
1: it is kind of cool to imagine like this huge animal just almost like rearing up and like semi climbing up a tree. I guess not really climbing up it, but I I just really like that image. It reminds me of giraffes.
0: Yeah, or like an elephant-sized kangaroo is is a wild image.
1: <laughs> yeah, like I really recommend searching up an image of like a parasaurolophus next to like an average human. I think those images always give me a really good sense of like, wow, if I saw this in real life, I would be so tiny and this thing would be so huge. <laughs> it just really helps you picture it. And then you can look out your window and imagine a big parasaurolophus there.
0: And could you talk a bit about the head ornamentation they have going on, which I think is one of the most iconic things about them? It's so cool. I
1: love their cranial crest. It's so beautiful and, like, elegant because their neck kind of dips down and forms this really, like, aesthetically pleasing kind of curvature to it. So the head itself with the crest was, like, five feet long or 1.6 meters, so really long. And... The crest, really, there's nothing alive that has something similar today quite like it. Not only is the crest beautiful, but it has some really neat purposes, we think at least. Over the years, the purpose of this cranial crest has been hotly debated. Perhaps at first they were thinking, well, it could be some kind of weapon, maybe like horns on a bighorn sheep or a rhino horn, but it doesn't really seem like it would be a very good weapon. It's in a weird place. It's not very sharp. Not very strong, so maybe not a weapon. But maybe it helped them brush vegetation out of their way or sort of acted like a vegetation guard so they weren't constantly getting poked in the eye by branches. But that doesn't seem super right either. Some people thought, okay, well, if we look on the inside of this cranial crust, there's a lot of tubes, so maybe it helps them smell better. And then some even thought that it could be some kind of snorkel or an air container and this made some sense at the time because it was thought that hadrosaurs were partly aquatic so a snorkel would be useful for them to spend more time under the water foraging for food or if it were an air container like they were just holding air in there to breathe they would have sort of acted like an oxygen tank as they chowed down on seaweed But these theories don't really work because there's no opening at the end of the crest to act like a snorkel. And also the space that exists within that cranial crest that would potentially hold air just is really very small. So it wouldn't be all that helpful
0: for such a large animal that has to breathe a lot of air. That's such an interesting theory. Like, I don't think that that would be the first thing that I would jump to would just be like, oh, it has like its own built in snorkel on the top of its head. Yeah. I don't think it was
1: a super serious or long lasting theory, but I don't know. I guess it kind of got some traction potentially. And like they had some fossil evidence pretty early on in its discovery of some preserved skin flaps that they thought were like webbing between the toes. And it turns out, I believe that it was like, the padding that I referred to before. So, like, on their feet, similar to elephants, they would have had, like, basically think of, like, a mushy balloon (laughs) that would have sort of, like, helped disperse their weight so they don't have really sore feet because they're standing on their toes, basically. And so it looks like the skin flaps were actually, like, a deflated, like, foot pad. So that's part of why they thought that this thing was semi-aquatic. And they also thought a lot of hadrosaurs were, like, amphibious. So... Now, of course, we know that Parasaurolophus would have spent its time on land. It was terrestrial. Maybe it would have had like occasional dips in the water, but was definitely not amphibious in the way that we once thought. So in 1975, paleontologist James Hopson further developed a hypothesis that seems pretty legitimate even today. Uh, And, you know, this idea was floating around for a little while that the crest was used for visual and auditory communication among the Parasaurolophus.
0: Yeah. How do you figure out something like noise with just the bones? It's really cool.
1: So basically another paleontologist, David Weisample looked at the structure of the bones. And I mentioned before that there was a bit of a tube structure. So think of like, yeah, it was like a tube that goes up the crest and kind of does a bit of a U-turn at the top and comes back around. So this kind of looked like a resonating chamber and much like resonating chambers seen in wind instruments like the saxophone or a tuba or a flute this structure actually looked very similar to this instrument from the Renaissance called a crumb horn, which is a very funny name for an instrument. I kind of love it. We don't hear about them a lot today, but it basically looks like a long recorder in the shape of a J. So imagine that. That's the crumb horn. And that's sort of what the tubes and the resonating chamber look like inside of the lophus so it's very possible that Parasoralophus was communicating with other members of its species using basically these low frequency tuba-like noises that it was use- like resonating up in that chamber. It could have also sounded more like little honks. And I have this really charming memory of Amanda, who was a guest on our show back at the, the start of the podcast a long, long time ago to talk about Pachycephalosaurus. And she was an interpreter at Dinosaur Provincial Park. And she was talking about Parasaurolophus and blowing very loudly into this like DIY Home Depot tube that made this honking sound for all of us. And it was very funny and very cute and interesting. So that's always what I think of when I think of the sound that
0: Parasaurolophus makes. Yeah, I can imagine that for sure. Further studies have shown that
1: other crested hadrosaurs, so dinosaurs including Corythosaurus and Lambiosaurus, could have also used similar resonating chambers to produce noise. So they also have kind of weird head ornamentation. So that's really neat. And the other thing we've realized is that the inner ear structure of hadrosaurs indicates that they probably had pretty decent hearing. So they could have actually heard things like honks and low-frequency tuba toots, which uh, supports the idea that this was producing auditory signals. Because we do want to look like, okay, if they were producing these noises, could members of their species actually hear those noises as well? It seems like a basic question, but it has to be checked in order to support a hypothesis. The other thing I wanted to mention about the cranial crest is that as Parasaurolophus grew, its crest would have changed shape. And so the sound it could produce would have changed as well. So for example, a young Parasaurolophus would have produced a higher pitched sound better for traveling short distances versus an adult producing lower frequency sounds. And that kind of makes sense because you would think that a young juvenile Parasaurolophus would have probably wanted to stay closer to the herd, maybe been communicating more with its mother, and thus wouldn't really need that long distance noise quite as much. And just to clarify, like the cranial crest, if you look at an illustration of the fossil, it's the, the tubes are going from the nostrils all the way to the back of the crest. So it's it's quite a large chamber here.
0: And why would they be producing sounds? What's the point of that?
1: It's a bit hard to know for sure because we don't find a lot of Parasaurolophus specimens, but it seems to indicate that Parasaurolophus were herd animals and would be communicating with one another. Although we don't have fossil evidence of this, like with other herding animals like Ceratopsians, where we find bone beds of many specimens altogether, which indicates a herding behavior. Parasaurolophus is a rare dinosaur. It doesn't seem to preserve well or something is going on there, not really sure. So instead, we are inferring this social behavior from the presence of the crest. Basically, there just isn't a very good explanation for the existence of the crest if Parasaurolophus wasn't at least a little bit social. I should also mention that the cranial crest's only purpose probably wasn't just sound production. It probably also helped Parasaurolophus regulate its temperature in some way, and it also was probably some sort of visual display as well. It may have indicated the sexual maturity of an individual, so it was a good signal to let males and females know that it was ready to mate, it was at the right age, or it may have also helped them figure out what species they were. Maybe they needed sort of like a little hint like, ah, this is the same species as me, therefore I can mate with it kind of thing.
0: Yeah, and so what's the history of the actual, I guess, fossils, especially since you said they're quite rare.
1: Yeah, so the first Parasaurolophus was found in 1920, so like over 100 years ago, by a University of Toronto field team along the Red Deer River in Alberta in the dinosaur park rock formation. I will also mention here that some places I read that the team was actually from the Royal Ontario Museum. So I think Think from what I could read, the museum seems to have funded the trip, so it was a bit of a collaboration between the University of Toronto and the museum. So just to clarify, there, in case people are like, "Well, I heard it was the University of Ontario," or sorry, the Royal Ontario Museum. Yeah, so it's 1920. They find the very first Parasaurolophus, and this species was named Parasaurolophus walkeri in 1922 by someone named William Park. Walkeri became the Parasaurolophus type species. And Park was the one who mistakenly thought that the Parasaurolophus was closely related to Saurolophus, which is an entirely different dinosaur. And although Saurolophus has a similar, albeit shorter and pointier crest, it does not share the tubes running through the Parasaurolophus's crest. But what happened is that after this discovery, which was a relatively complete type specimen, we really... Don't have a lot of other good specimens of Parasaurolophus in Alberta. They found pretty much like one partial skull and three other specimens with no heads that may be Parasaurolophus, but we're not really sure. So, again, it's kind of disappointing. We haven't seen a lot. But eventually, a second species called Parasaurolophus tubicen was found and it was named for the Latin word for trumpeter. So, tubicen, trumpeter. It was discovered a year after wakari in New Mexico, and this species was based off only half of a skull. Many decades later in 1961, John Ostrom described our third species of Parasaurolophus, which is Parasaurolophus cerdochristatus, and this one was also from New Mexico. This species, though, has also been found in Utah, so we've got a couple locations here. Overall, to help you remember the three species, Walkeri was the first. It also had the simplest crest because it is very straight with very simple tubing structures within it. Tubicen is the second species to be found and has the longest, most complex tube structure as well as the largest body size overall. And the last to be discovered, Cerdocristatus, had the shortest tube with more of a curl to it and it was the smallest species. Now, because of these differences that we see in the crest sizes and designs, some have suggested that maybe the differences in species that we're seeing are not differences in species at all, but are instead differences between males and females. So, Walkeri and tubisen with their long crests could potentially be males, and cerdocristatus is a female. So, this sort of insinuates that maybe we're talking about the same species here and just seeing sexual differences. Or maybe... They are different species, but there are also like sexual differences within a species to be aware of, uh, in terms of the crest size and shape. However, more recently, a paper was published in 2021 that describes a better Parasaurolophus cerdocristatus skull that better clarifies that ceratocrustatus is probably its own species, but it is also more closely related to Parasaurolophus tubicen than Walkeri. So that's kind of interesting, but. I said there's three species. With an exception, there may be a fourth secret Parasaurolophus. Uh, it's <laughs> not really secret, but it's just debated a bit. And this is something called Charnosaurus giensis. So Charnosaurus looks super similar to Parasaurolophus, but is way bigger at 33 feet or 10 meters long. It is massive. And it's from a completely different continent than all the others in its gen- genus all the way over in China. Most interesting of all, Charnosaurus lived until the KPG extinction, while the other Lambiosaurines were thought to have gone extinct by this point in North America. In 2014, Hai Jing published a paper showing how despite these differences, it looks like Charnosaurus is in fact a Parasaurolophus. So this means rethinking when and where Lambiosaurines may have been and for how long.
0: Wow, that's, that's so cool.
1: It's very cool. And like, really, this is when you have to, you have to search up the size comparison to a human because it's, it's pretty mind boggling.
0: Yeah, that's huge. I can't, I can't even wrap my head around it.
1: And like, to think of this thing produced noise, I, I honestly wonder how loud it would have
0: been. Oh my god, yeah.
1: Would it have just been like ground shaking or, or what? I'm just, I'm so fascinated. Wow. Another specimen that I wanted to mention that I think is kind of neat is that there's basically this juvenile Parasaurolophus fossil named Joe, and Joe was found by a 17-year-old Kevin Terrace and paleontologist Andrew Fark in 2009. Joe was one years old when he died, and from him we learned that at this age Parasaurolophus were about a quarter of their adult size and barely had a crest yet. At this point, the crest was more like a little bump on the head, but it does indicate that the head ornamentation starts developing at a pretty young age. So it probably grows quite quickly and, uh, you know, they get a bit of a head start by starting to grow it early.
0: It sounds like paleontologists have figured out a lot from, you know, relatively few fossils.
1: Yeah, like they definitely know less about Paparasaurolophus than other hadrosaurs, but this is still like a decent amount to to know or at least to speculate about i suppose this is a bit of an aside but i think the past i would say like 6 months i have heard honestly like this is a bit of like dino drama but like a little bit more criticism about paleontology as a field than ever before in the sense of like a lot of si- i've i've heard a lot of sort of when i'm talking to scientists these sort of passing digs at lack of evidence in terms of like guessing ecology about dinosaurs and stuff. So that's been kind of interesting to like hear as part of the scientific community and sort of apply to like, just think about when I'm, I'm reading these things is I'm like, I have to be really critical of the evidence sometimes because it's really easy for scientists to get excited and, and be like, yeah, it for sure did this thing when like, honestly, we, we, we really can't know for sure. But I think I'm going on a tangent. All that to say, I, it's been very interesting to sort of hear how other scientists are maybe critical of each other's work and different fields in
0: in interesting, potentially controversial ways. Yeah, it's it's good to remember that these are all really hypotheses. And like with paleontology, yeah. they'll never really be able to be 100% sure of anything.
1: Yeah, like I think it's we, we can try really hard to make the evidence work for things and we can have a good idea, but really we just always need more evidence. And like these ideas might change really soon, or it might take decades before they change again. Hard to know. Hard to say. But I guess that's part of what makes paleontology so exciting is there's so many twists and turns in the way we imagine these animals and the ways that technology is developed to allow us to understand them better. So I don't know. I think I think it's really cool and it, it still makes me Excited to learn about paleontology further.
0: Yeah, it's still such a mystery for sure. Yeah. And so to end it off, I guess I was wondering what the world of Parasaurolophus looked like.
1: The three Parasaurolophus species, so not including Charnosaurus, lived along the Western Interior Seaway. So this was the sea that once split North America in half. And this would have been a really warm tropical place uh, that spread between the Rockies and the sea. So Parasaurolophus would have had. A pretty beautiful landscape to be living in um, with all kinds of diverse creatures. Uh, big theropods, smaller theropods, uh, ceratopsians, all kinds of big dinosaurs. And yeah, they would have been pretty much hanging out in these lush forested areas. So cool. So that's Parasaurolophus. It's a really beautiful creature who was able to walk on its back legs and likely hung out with other Parasaurolophus friends and They would all sing to their
0: heart's content. So I'll leave you with that image. Thanks so much, Olivia. This was a really fun episode. And thanks everyone so much for tuning in. If you want to support the show, you can always join our Patreon to get exclusive rewards from Olivia. And of course, make sure to check out our Etsy shop.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok.
0: Tune in next time to learn more about the insects, fish, and fossils you can find in Animal Crossing, New Horizons. Bye. Bye.